Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you as we continue our series titled Wish List. Every year during the Christmas season, all of us are accustomed to looking at wish lists. So we're taking a few weeks to look at God's wish list. We're looking at the things that God wants. What we've learned is that God doesn't need anything. And that should just blow our mind. God needs absolutely nothing, but he wants something. And everything he wants is something for us. Remember, God doesn't need anything from you, but wants something for you. The first week we learned that God wants us to experience an abundant relationship, overflowing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that comes from that intimate relationship with him and allowing him to be our Lord or, or leader, right? Allowing him to guide us and direct us every day. Last week, we learned that God wants us to live with hope, and we learned that our hope in God is rooted in what God has done, and we can look back to the creation, we can look back to the, the prophecies about Jesus, we can look at the coming of Jesus, we can look at the death and resurrection of Jesus to understand that our future hope in Christ is rooted in the things we know he's already done, and so God wants us to live in that hope. And we learn that our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is that we will be reunited with our friends and family who know Jesus Christ one day. Today we're going to be reminded, or maybe learn, but probably be reminded, that God wants us to experience and live in love. Now, love is actually rather difficult to talk about because the word love, how we use it, generally expresses our feelings about so many different things. Right, I've told you the story about when I had to muster up the courage to tell Jessica that I loved her for the very first time. You remember that? I, I was so nervous and so excited to actually say the words, I love you. You remember that story? She turned around and didn't say it back, right? I wasn't very happy about that one. Well, I'll retell that a different day. But I felt so many emotions because I, I knew this word love was so important. So I felt so many emotions about saying it, but then knowing I was going to say it and the anxiety is she going to say it back created so many more emotions. So like love can make us so emotional. But yet when I say I love ice cream, I don't feel any of that. Think about it. We say we love ice cream. We say we love our children. We say we love butterflies. And some of you actually say you love cold weather. I don't understand it. But you use that word. So what does, I mean, how we use love, it just kind of blows our mind. And it's difficult to talk about because we use it to talk about the deepest, most important relationships. And then we use the word love to describe how we feel about a piece of clothing we just bought. You see, when we use the word love today, we are generally speaking about some sort of feeling we are feeling. No wonder then when we turn to the Bible, we are so confused when we read about love. Because when we, ha when we, when we learn what the Bible says, we have to understand that when the Bible's talking about love, it's not talking about our feelings. You see, in the New Testament times, there was three primary words for love. We have eros. Eros is the erotic or sexual love. 
We understand that this love is a good type of love between husband and wife, but the New Testament actually never uses that word. So when the Bible calls a husband to love their wife, say husbands love your wife, it calls the husbands to a greater love than that just sexual love that husband and wife share. The other two words the Bible does use um, when referring to love are a little bit harder to separate because the, they seem to overlap in many different areas. Areas, But phileo generally refers to tender affection towards friends and family. And then there's this other word, agape. You've probably heard that mentioned before. And what's amazing about that love is it's not used much in extra biblical literature. That means back then in that time, all the other literature they have, that word agape love isn't used that often. It's very rare. But that word is used over and over again in the New Testament. It's as if the writers took this common term, this word that wasn't used that much, and redefined it and started putting a definition to what it actually means in light of who God is. You see, agape love is always referred to in a positive love in this theological context. You see, the biblical writers, what we have to understand is the Bible wants to define love for us. So here's the problem. When you and I are talking about love, we're describing a feeling that can range from something very small like a piece of clothing to something very large like that relationship between um, children and their parents, right? That's kind of one of those loves that we can't explain. It's just natural. We love our kids. Our kids, for some reason, love us. It's just this thing that's natural. But when the Bible writers talk about love, they're not talking about feelings. They're talking about love in a theological sense, right? Remember, theology is the study of God and his relation to the word, I meant to the world. So they're talking about how love is theological. We're like, it is. Yeah, we're about to find out today. Love is completely theological because love comes from who? God, right? So right at the beginning, they're saying love is theological. We have to start there. It's about God. The Bible writers are talking about love ethically. They're explaining that love must drive our behavior in the things we do, not just how we feel. And then they're talking about love morally, right? Morals are about the ultimate good and the ultimate bad. And if you didn't know, I'm glad you're here. The Bible does say there are good things and there are bad things. And love is the highest virtue of them all. The highest good is love. C.S. Lewis, which we're going to quote a lot today because he helped me a lot thinking through this. C.S. Lewis says this. He said, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion, It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will, which we have naturally about ourselves, and we must learn to have about other people. You see, our understanding of love must be rooted and grounded in what the Bible says about love, because love is a central theme. And the Bible writers want to teach us what love is. And they're not aiming at your feelings because love is commanded. And I don't know about you, but I can't command myself to feel anything. Can you? When was the last time you were upset and you said, be happy, and then you just changed like that? I wish emotions worked that way, don't you? But if emotions were something we just could command, that would be great, but that's not the case. But love is actually command, so it can't just be about our feelings. And for me, understanding that when God tells me to love, he's not commanding me to feel a certain thing, it's a relief. 
It's a sigh of relief. It's going, okay. So it's not just about me feeling or, or something like that. It's something different. While it's a relief that I don't have to feel a certain way, on the other hand, it's automatically a challenge because that means loving others is actually possible even if I don't feel like it. You ever not felt like loving someone? Don't lie, you're in church. So let's dive in this morning and learn about love. We're going to learn from one of the most, most important sections about love. It's 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Here's what John tells us. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. We've heard that before. For love comes from God. Everyone who has loved has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So you've probably heard this before, but John is exhorting us to love others. And the basis of this love is God himself. One commentator says, love flows from or out of God and has God as its spring or source. So picture God as the source or the flowing spring of love. And so love comes from God. And the evidence that people know God is their love for other people. Now, he isn't saying all you have to do is somehow love someone and then you're saved. No, quite the opposite. He's giving a test for ourselves as he does throughout 1 John. He's saying the absence of love for others, the absence of love for others in your life is evidence that you do not know God. If loving others is absent from your life, you don't know God. And since we know love is more than a feeling, what is he actually asking us to do? And again, Lewis helps and I think captures the essence of this. He says, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Now stay here with me. This is helpful. I think it's helpful and I think we can do this, church. I think we can actually do this, that love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. So to love others is to wish for the best for them. To wish for the best for other people. Now that we can do. And in fact, that is what God does. Remember, God created a wish list and we're talking about it. He has expressed that he loves us and he wants you and me to experience his love. And that is the ultimate good, God himself. But let's pause for a minute and unpack that last part of that verse where it says, God is love. Do you remember that it said God is love? We're going to have to turn our learning caps on for a minute because this is very important to understand. New Testament scholar Stephen Smalley gives us three observations that we need to know what this God is love means. This is what it's grounded in. He says this. First, he says its background of this idea of God is love is the, its background is the Jewish understanding of God as living, personal, and active. Rather than the Greek concept of a deity, which is abstract in character. So love is rooted in a personal, actual being. Not this feeling, not this idea, just this love other type of... No, no, no. Love is rooted in a personal, actual God. Number two, look at what he says. He says, to assert 
comprehensively that God is love does not ignore or exclude, this is very important, does not ignore or exclude the other attributes of his being to which the Bible as a whole bears witness, notably his justice and his truth. Too often you've heard it and I have, we say, well, God is love, and somehow we, means it, we think if he's love, that means he's not truth. Well, that's not true. Or we think if God is love, that means he's not holy. No, he is holy. He is love, but he's holiness. His justice still rings true. So God is love, but he's also other things, not only love. And then number three, he says, there's a tendency of modern theologies, especially process thought, to transpose the equation. Just put our learning caps on. This is good stuff, I promise. God is love into the reverse. Love is God. But this is not a Joannian or biblical idea. As John makes absolutely clear in this passage, the controlling principle of the universe is not an abstract quality of love, but a sovereign, living God who is the source of all love and who was as love himself loves. So when we understand love, we say God is love, but the reverse is not true. Love is God. Remember, as I said, we're dealing with love as a theological truth, not this abstract bumper sticker we want to put on a car to make ourselves feel good. Love is grounded in the Bible. Love, love is rooted in a personal God who is holy, who is truthful and just and the source of all love. Because this, this is why it's important, you're going to see with this personal loving God how he loves. Look at what he says next. He says, and this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This, of course, is echoes John 3, 16. And if you don't know that, let's read it, John 16 through 17. It's the same writer who writes it. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, Jesus came, John's telling us, on a mission. Jesus came on a mission to provide eternal life and to save us. You see, to, if, if John says that we can live through him, that implies that we were in a state of spiritual darkness, a spiritual death. And that's the Bible account. We're in a state of spiritual death. But Jesus came so that we might have life. The world, if you didn't know this already, the world is broken and sinful and evil. Yet God has come to rescue. He has come to save us. Now he tells us how he did this. Verse 10. He said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He clarifies, not that we love God. He says, listen, you didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't earn the merit. You didn't do the checklist. You weren't just a good old boy with a good old family and somehow God loved you. He said, no, no, you did nothing to deserve this love. God owes you absolutely nothing. You can't have God in your debt. It's impossible. Our relationship with him is because he initiates the relationship. He reveals himself. He calls us to himself. 
And he shows us his love by sending his son as our atoning sacrifice. Sin was the problem. Sin separates us from God. Yet Christ atones and dies for our sin. You see, the word here used, translated for atoning for our sins uh, means the removal of guilt because of sin. It's propitiation. It's dealing with the wrath of God, meaning Jesus removed the wrath we deserved because we were in sin. Jesus took that upon him Self. He took that wrath we deserve so we could be saved. And I know for many of us, we've heard about God's love in some form probably our entire lives. But can you just try for a minute to pretend like you've never heard this and listen to the depth of what John's saying? He's saying there's a real personal God who created this world. Not this abstract thing, not just this mother nature, not, not just something out there, but there's this real personal God who spoke everything into existence. And yet we have sinned against this creator. We've chosen to do our own thing our own way. And you know you do. We all have. But yet this God chose to come in human flesh, come down, take responsibility for our sin, and die for it. To bear his own wrath. To take away our punishment. He said, I'll do that. I'll take that upon myself. And then offer us grace and forgiveness and mercy and say, I love you and I want you to be with me and I don't want you separated. So I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. Stop running. I love you. The God of the universe would do that for us? John says yes. Because God is love. Our act was to sin. God's act was to send and save do we see how love is action-oriented? Do you see how love is something that we do, not just something we feel, but it does something, it puts things into motion, it takes care of things. It's not just a mental exercise. Love is action. And so God wants us, you and me, to experience his love, and he took responsibility for the thing that was stopping it. He paid for it, he dealt with it, and instead of being aggravated with us, Instead of being mad at us, imagine dying for something. You'd be a little aggravated, wouldn't you? Like I got beat for you, kind of put me in a bad mood. No. He says, come on. I want you to be with me. I want you to spend eternity with me. You see, one thing we need to get abundantly clear is how God, excuse me, how love addresses sin. For whatever reason, a modern misunderstanding of love means that we are supposed to accept sin and just say it's a-okay. Somehow we're just supposed to, this modern idea is just that whatever people do, however they act, whatever they're in, we're just supposed to say, ah, it's okay, I love you, let's just ignore it. But you see, if you mix that with the standalone of, uh, verse about judging, we get what's happened to modern churches where we just think everything's okay and God doesn't care. And yet the Bible doesn't seem to say that at all. What it seems to say is that God hung on a cross for that sin. And that sin deserves wrath. I mean, that's what it actually says. So we get in this problem of what people think, but then what the Bible says. You see, I did the same thing when I was younger. You see, I took the theological idea of salvation because I kept hearing, all you have to do is say this prayer and you're good. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah, just pray. I'm like, awesome. And they're like, by the way, once saved, never lose it. Tell that to a 16-year-old. Hold on, hold on. All I got to do is say this prayer? Yeah. And then I can never lose it? No. no. Hold on. No matter what I do, no, 
awesome. And so I did. I lived in it. Let me tell you something. It wasn't fun. The consequences I still deal with. Those consequences of sin do catch up. And then you have to live with them for the rest of your life. See, people have done the same thing with this God's love. We don't put these theological guardrails. But what John makes abundantly clear is God doesn't look over sin. God doesn't think it's not a big deal. Rather, God dies for it. He deals with it head on and tackles the problem and gives himself up for it. God addresses sin. Meaning when we understand the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, we see the grave consequences of sin. And yet we see God deal with it himself. In order to understand propitiation, we have to understand sin deserves wrath. See, Brian, this makes me uncomfortable. It should. It is uncomfortable. But yet that is God's great love. And when we understand that that is how he showed love, it makes this next verse ridiculously challenging. You ready for it? In light of the cross, in light of the propitiation, in light of the fact that you're a sinner and God took your wrath, in light of that's how God displayed his love to you, what does he tell us to do? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we're like, yeah, we like that part. We ought, we also ought to love one another. You mean like that? Yeah. I don't want to do that. Do we need to go back to the beginning? This is how God loved us. In light of God's great demonstration of love, in light of the cross, in light of him dealing with our greatest needs, we ought to love one another. You remember Jesus' command? This is what John's rooted in. He wrote the Gospel of John 2. Remember this? John 13. Jesus says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. Say this with me. As I have loved you. Like, yeah, but that whole cross thing, he's like, I know. Love is sacrificial. Love is more just the feeling. Love is something you do. We're to love as Jesus loves. I love this quote one scholar writes. Next slide. He says, Christ's love is no timid meekness, no sentimental mildness, inoffensive and ineffectual, helpless in the face of the world's evil. It is a strong determination to seek others' highest good in all circumstances at any cost. On that simple but demanding principle, hang all the more obligation and divine law to love is enough. But it's not mild. It's a strong determination to seek the good of other people. Love wants to seek the highest good for others, and love is willing to pay the price in order for that to happen. Jesus died. He reconciled our sin in order to make it happen. You see, when we are called to love others, we have to realize that Christ didn't overlook sin. Christ dealt with sin. He didn't act like it wasn't a big deal. He knew it was a big deal and did a big thing to deal with it. Love addresses sin because what all of us are going to have a hard time with, if we're honest, but I know you because I know me. This is common to all of us. We all say we want to love others until a couple of things happen. Number one, until someone's called in sin, we try to, how do I love them now? What do I do that they sin? I know they're in sin. I know, what, what do I do? And what's even harder is how do we love others when they sin against us or someone we love? Now, that ain't easy, is it? But in light of the cross, what do we do? 
You see, if someone is caught up in sin and we do wish their ultimate good, then we must address the sin. We must help them live in the truth of the gospel because God loves them. Since God is love and has showed them in love, we want to call other people out of that sin and say, listen, this isn't for your good. That's harmful because sin will devastate your life. You may not see it. You may not think it, but it always will. There's thousands of years of people who've already went down that path in this book. There's a testimony of thousands of years of people in this. If we add all our age up, we'll get over a thousand years of people who can tell you sin will devastate and ruin your life. So if you want the ultimate good for other people, we deal with that sin. Love deals with it. We address it because we love them. That doesn't mean it's easy. But surely the cross wasn't easy, was it? And what about when someone sins against us or someone we love? Think about those things. I have them too. We are still called to love. This is where our faith gets radically challenged. And it's not just you, it's absolutely all of us. But yet it is our challenge to accept as followers of Jesus Christ. This is when all those teachings unique to Christ come into play. The forgiveness, the mercy, the reconciliation. That's when all of that stuff comes into play to help us work through what it means to love. Remember, Paul explains what love is, and he doesn't add a qualifier if you feel like it, right? We wish he did. He doesn't. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonest, honor, dishonest others. Yeah, but what they did to me, Paul says, it doesn't matter. You don't dishonor other people. Yeah, but Paul, mm-mm. you don't dishonest others. It's not self-seeking. Yeah, but I want justice. Uh-huh. God will take care of it. You don't seek that for yourself. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and always perseveres. Ethically, this is what love looks like. And this is extremely important because there will, be, there will come a day in your life, and I know in my life, when something happens so offensive, so difficult, so radically heartbreaking, that we're going to have to figure out what it means to love, and we don't want to. But as followers of Christ, we are called to love. There is no time and there is no exception to this idea that we can't forgive. We are called to forgive all. Does that mean you have to reconcile and go back to how it was? No, that's not what forgiveness means. We can deal with that another day. But there is no time that we, aren't not, that we are always called to forgive. And anytime you say, I don't want to, they've hurt me too much, you are confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ. You are confronted with the fact that God showed his great love for you and hung up there and bled out for you because of your sin. That's what love does. He died a torturous death for us and then calls you and me to then go out in light of that cross and love other people. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does mean we strive for love. And before you cross your arms and huff and puff and get all mad, I want to ask you, what's your other option? If you do not intentionally strive for love, you're going to be pulled towards hatred. And when that festers up in you, you will be transformed into a shadow of what you once were. You will become this hellish creature 
mad and aggravated. It's not neutral. Hatred will develop in you and turn you into something of who you once were because of that time, because of that thing. How many people do you know they can point to the misery in their life about that one thing, about that one time? And they let that just fester and build up, and they transformed into something completely different. And now nobody likes them, let's be honest. Hatred will work on you, but so will love. So rather than allow hatred to pull you, because it will, it's not neutral. It's going to pull you. It's going to grab you. It's going to consume you. Instead of allowing hatred to do that, you choose to love, and you are proactive, action-oriented, saying, I'm going to love. I don't feel like it. Preacher told me I didn't have to feel like it. Thank you, Lord. I don't have to feel like it, but I'm going to work on it. I'm going to choose to love. And when you say, Brian, you don't understand what I've been through, you're right. But I know for me personally, I've had to deal with some pretty terrible stuff. I've told you all a lot of it. But you still have to love. As a follower of Christ, we all have to work on this. We all have to work through this. Because God wants you to live in love. He wants you to experience that love. He's gone through great lengths to do it. It wasn't cheap. For you to experience and live in his love. So in light of the cross, understanding and picturing Christ dying up there on the cross for me and you, how can we say anything is too hard and too difficult? How can we think I am above the command to love? You see, John calls us to the cross because he understands the incredible evil in this world. And he wants us to know, and he wants you to know, that God wants you to live and experience love. Because love wants to do something in you. Look at verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see, love has a goal. The outpouring of God's love wants to come full circle in your life. He wants to love you. He calls you. He forgives you. He does all these things for you. And he wants it to transform you in order to then to love others and forgive others and show mercy to others. His love will complete you when we are feeling that outpouring and experience that outpouring of God's love. It should then transform us to allow others to experience the same. And this isn't the first time he talks about the completeness of God's love. Look what he says in 1 John 2, 5. He said, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And what's one of the commands is to love. You see how it just comes together? There's no getting out of it. There's no sidetrack. If there was, if there was a gray area, I would tell you because I would live in it. I would live in the gray area of not having to love and forgive plenty of people in my life, wouldn't you? but it's not what we're called to do. When we love others, God's love is made complete in us or made whole. The outpouring of his love has a goal and it's for you to love others. We don't have time to work through the whole section, but jump down to verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a... liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And yet he has given us the command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 
And I know this is challenging. Our faith doesn't allow us to live in hate. Hate will destroy you. There's no way we can justify living in sin because someone else sinned. Do we get that? If hatred is sin, how can we go to God and justify that, God, I'm going to live in sin because they sinned against me? How in the world can we be so hypocritical to say it's okay for me to be in sin, God, but it's not okay for them to be in sin, God? I'm justified in my sin, but they're not. Christ calls us out of that. He says, look at the cross. I did it for them too. Love other people. All of us will be tested and challenged in this. The world is evil. If you're surprised by that, you've missed the biblical account of the world. It's going to be hard, but as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to love. I don't believe that's going to happen overnight for any of us. Forgiveness surely doesn't. But are you working towards love or are you dwelling in hate? Are you thinking about all the reasons why you don't want to forgive or thinking about all the reasons why you must forgive? As I told you before, I believe one offense can cause us to forgive someone 700 times. I've had to forgive people over and over for that one thing. Y'all ever had to do that? I told you about it growing up. You know, I just thought I put that behind me. Then later it'd come back up. I said, well, Lord, I got to forgive against that again. I think that's what Jesus meant. You got to forgive that many times, all those numbers he gave, because it's going to keep coming up. So all of us will have to deal with this. But God wants you to experience, this is his want, this is his wish list. He wants you to experience his love. The good news is that Jesus, Jesus Christ came to rescue from your sin. You can experience God's love because of God's grace and mercy. He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, that shame and that guilt and all that other stuff, God wants you to say, listen, I paid for it. It's on the cross. Leave it there. I dealt with it. Leave it there. God wants you to experience his love. We talk about the incarnation of Christmas, that Christ took on human flesh to come, but we must be reminded that we are to take on God's love as an incarnate. It's supposed to live and dwell inside of us so we can love other people. See, God came to us not because we deserved anything, but he came to us because we love. God wants you to experience his love, his forgiveness, his reconciliation. He wants to remove that shame and that guilt. And he wants you to be radically transformed and, listen, healed by his love. Folks, the only thing that's going to heal that hatred is love. Love will heal. We experience it first from God. You know the popular saying is hurt people hurt people. Y'all ever experience that? That popular saying, hurt people hurt people? Of course you have. But on the flip side, people who've been radically changed by God's love will love people. It's just part of it. But thankfully, it doesn't mean we have to feel a certain way. At least not at first. C.S. Lewis helps us again one more time. He says this. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Don't you like the way he writes? I do. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Pretend. Fake it till you make it. This is one of the greatest 20th century philosophers, one of the greatest minds. It says, fake it till you make it, folks. That's what we got. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. 
Don't wait until you feel it. Start doing it. Start living it. Fake it. And allow your heart to get broken for them because it'll happen. We must strive towards love. You see, this is game changing for me because I can do this, can't you? I can fake it till I make it, can't you? I mean, honestly, can't you try this? You see, this actually makes sense that when Jesus says, love your enemies, we go, it must be a misprint. I don't understand how that's possible. This is how. Love your enemies. Love those who've hurt you. This is game changing. It's not dismissing sin. It's not pretending people haven't hurt us. But it's rather calling us in light of the cross, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, to rise above it, which is hard, to rise above it and behave in a way that you love them. For me, and I hope for you, this can radically set you free. It can set you free from dealing with those emotions and get caught up in how you feel and thinking you're a sinner and that you're trying and they hurt you. And you're trying to figure out how to make all the sense because I'm supposed to love or I'm not a Christian, but I don't feel like loving them, right? Y'all ever went through that? That's just how mine works. I don't know, I guess. It's just where I'm at. But this helps me realize it's not about what I feel in the moment, but it's about what I must do. And love is what I'm called to. So let me ask you this question we learned during our um, wisdom series a couple months back. What does love require of you? Remember that question? In light of Jesus Christ, in light of the cross, what does love require of you? Instead of worrying about how you feel, what does it look like for you to behave your way into love? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to work on forgiving? Have you started praying, God, help me forgive? Start there. Start with, God, I don't want to forgive, but help me forgive. Be honest. God, help me. Who do you need to reconcile with? Who do you need to show love to? Because the goal here, which I want you to please understand, is hate will ruin you. It will consume you. And God wants you to experience his love. That's what we're talking about today. This includes his love, but also showing love to others. And I don't want you to hinder your spiritual life and your outflowing and your feeling of God's love and what he wants to do with you because of hate. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we all think about what does love require of us, God, we know it is challenging. Your word challenges us. But Lord, we're reminded of the great lengths you went on the cross. You took on our wrath. You paid the penalty for our sins. You covered all that up. You sought the highest good for us, although we did not deserve it. So, Father, we come to you to first thank you so much for your great love. It's truly humbling to realize that you love us despite our sin and despite all the things we've done. Father, it's amazing to understand that you loved us before we did anything, anything at all to deserve your love. You love us because you were loved. Father, we thank you for the cross and Jesus coming to rescue us from our sin. Father, in light of your great love, help us love. Help each and every one of us understand love is so much greater than our feelings. We know our feelings can be untrustworthy, but we know your love will complete us. So, Father, help us see where we need to love deeper. 
who we need to love greater in our lives. Father, I pray that our church, First Baptist Church, is characterized by your great love. And our people are out there daily, loving. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.